for us as we continue our study in Judges. Lord, we thank you for the book of Judges. It is very confronting. It's full on. And we thank you for the continuing story that you're a faithful God. We pray for your servant, John. Holy Spirit, I pray and ask that you'd empower him uh, through your power and your strength to proclaim the mysteries and the wonders of the word. We pray for our own hearts that we will listen. That you would change us and we walk away knowing you more. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, Morning, folks. Uh, thanks for coming. Wouldn't have been the same without you. There's a few empty seats today. I think there's a lot of people still on holidays. That too, my whole family has abandoned me this morning. Uh, but uh, thanks for coming and welcome to you. We've been looking at the book of Judges. And the Judges is the sixth book of the Old Testament. And uh, we've been looking at that. And Judges is the, uh, it looks at Israel in the years uh, between the death of Joshua, who was the guy who brought the people into the promised land after Moses had brought them up to the promised land. And he was a mighty man, a good guy, a good leader. And it goes right up to the time when the first king arrives. So the death of Joshua up to the kings. I think it's around 400 odd years or so. And this book of Judges, as we've been finding out, uh, can be somewhat um, depressing and often quite gory. Already we've had stories of uh, a lady driving a tent peg through a guy's head while he was uh, asleep and, and killing him. And we've had uh, a left-handed man driving his knife into a, a rather overweight king with all the fat folding over that. And he took off while the guy uh, died. It's just horrible, horrible stuff. And last week we had Abimelech, who's probably one of the worst of the whole lot. He's a self-appointed, self-confessed, ruthless, power-happy sort of a guy who actually murders 70 of his brothers on the same stone, it tells us. And if it sounds like the book of Judges is a horrible book, it's just because it is. That's what it is. There's this total scene of lawlessness going on at the same time. And for me, it's not just um, horrible and all that sort of stuff and discouraging because of the violence and the killing that's going on in nearly every page that we open up in this book. But as I've been reading through and studying it and looking at it, to me, it serves as this constant in-your-face reminder that us humans do not learn our lessons very well and that we are incredibly capable of time and time again making the same mistakes. So today as we read and we find ourselves uh, maybe even criticising the Israelites a little bit, what they're doing, let's just keep in mind that their behaviour sometimes is just a little bit like ours, okay? So in Judges, we've been following the cycle that we've talked about and we learned about that at the start of the series where it goes like this. Israel abandons the Lord and they take on the false gods of the nations around them. And today you're going to see Israel go to brand new heights, more than they have ever done before. In fact, it'd be true to say when it came to sin, the Israelites are very, very good learners, just like some of us are unfortunately too. Then in the second part of the cycle, we see God punishing them and the way he does that is by allowing their enemies to defeat them and enslave them for a period of time. And after this time of oppression, then Israel would cry out to the Lord. And that's an interesting thing too, because we're going to look at that. Is it actual repentance or is it not really repentance? We'll have a look at that. And then God would raise up a judge or a leader to deliver them. They'd be set free from the enemies. Everybody jump up and down. What a wonderful thing that is. And then there'd be some peace for some time. The judge would die and then bingo. Just like that, we're back serving the false gods of all the other nations again. And we begin again. And speaking of that very cycle, why don't we put our tray tables up and put our seatbelt on and get in crash positions because they're about to do it again. And I think we're about to be in... Thanks, Tracy. And we're about to be heading off to about cycle number six, I think it is. 
And we're going to be hanging out in chapters 10 and 11 and 12, which is a pretty large section of Scripture. It would be uh, ridiculous uh, to try and cover that in one morning. So will you get ridiculous with me and why don't we give that a shot this morning, okay? So we're going to be moving pretty quickly. So grab your Bibles, open them up, and let's see what God's up to in this portion of His Word. Um, just, I do want to pray just before we do that. And I know we've prayed, but just let's uh, settle again before we hear His Word. Lord, this morning would you teach us and challenge us through your word and by the work of your Holy Spirit. And because of your great love towards us and desire for us to follow you faithfully, would you show each of us what it is that you're saying to us so that we might hear it, know it to be truth, and respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's important that we um, keep that in mind, isn't it? That God might speak to us in completely different ways uh, to each other. So be aware of that uh, by the Holy Spirit as we do that. Let's start at uh, verse 6 in chapter 10 and see what's doing here. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There they go. There they go. Straight away we're heading off. They served the Baals and the Asterisks and the gods of Aram, which is Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook, which means abandoned, the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Amorites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. Please take note of that, the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin and Ephraim. The tribes of uh, Israel, of course. And Israel was in great distress. I've got to note that I have got the words up there if uh, you don't have a Bible with you today. So look at the words they've been using already in regards to this. Shattered, crushed, oppressed, distressed. You can see that Israel here has abandoned the Lord again. And now these godless nations are attacking them left, right and centre. In fact, the Ammonites, they're actually running rampant all over Israel, but with God's permission. Uh, to do that so what are they going to do verse 10 then the Israelites cried out to the Lord surprise 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 we have sinned against you forsaking our God and serving the Baals now there's nothing new is there yep they are crying out but is this real repentance and I actually don't think so in fact, just in here where they say we have sinned against you, forsaking our God, the word God there is not the covenant God. We're not talking Jehovah, Yahweh. It's like a general all-purpose word for God. And this is just uh, part of the deal here as well. The Lord then replied, verse 11, Yep, no worries, I can hear. I'm going to fix it up for you right now. Oh, no. There's going to be a different response this time in cycle six, it appears. This time he says to them, watch this, when the Egyptians... The Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mayanites oppressed you and cried to me for help. Did I not save you from their hand? Rhetorical question. He's not really waiting for an answer from them. But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer serve you. Whoa. Wow. How many tribes of people has he rescued them from at the moment? Tell me, how many tribes of people so far? Seven, there they are. And how many gods have they turned to? All of them. They've got the whole trophy case full now. They can hardly close the door and put the key on it. They're now worshipping all of these gods. And we know that this worshipping of these other gods just continues to spiral through this whole uh, judge's scene throughout the whole book. And it's abomination to the Lord, particularly when you consider that they're given the law and Moses gets the Ten Commandments. What's the first one? You are to have no other gods before me. And then God says to them in verse 14, 
Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Wow. And he says this because even though they have called out to him, their gods and their idols and their statues are still sitting there. They haven't got rid of them. They're still there. So the Lord is saying, there's your gods over there where you left them. Go out and call out to them. Get help from them. What's going on here? Is the Lord abandoning his people? Is he saying, enough's enough, I'm done with you guys. The covenant is done. I'm forgetting that it's, it's over. Doesn't he love them anymore? Well, quite the opposite. He's really showing that he does love them here, isn't he? It sounds a bit weird, but think about this. What could be more loving to let your child know and know strongly about the stupidity of the choices that they are making? Disobedience is a horrible and ugly thing, and it can lead to disaster. We see that all the way through the Bible. But you see it in your own life, don't you? If you're disobedient, it always ends up in disaster somewhere. Sometimes as a parent, when a child makes a bad choice after bad choice after bad choice, and we have warned them, sometimes we need to let them feel the severity of what they're doing by letting them go and discover a few things and get the consequences happening for their actions. And why do we do that? Because we love them. It's part of what we are as parents. And this is what God's doing here with who? The children of Israel. When Samuel is about two, hand up Samuel, there he is right over there. He's here this morning. Thanks for coming. When Samuel was about two years old, um, we used to go to my uncle's place. My uncle had a really nice swimming pool. And Samuel would uh, head across and he'd go to get the pool and say, Samuel, don't do that. Don't go without Daddy. Daddy needs to be with you. Your father needs to be with you to look after you, to care for you. And he'd go across and sometimes he'd sort of, I'd have to pull him out. And so time and time and time this went on. And so one day I made a bit of a difference. One day he completely abandoned his father. Just as the... Israelites abandon their God. And I watched as he inched closer to the edge of the pool, looking, you know how kids do when they look out of the corner of their eye to see if you're looking there? And I didn't do anything. I just looked at him, let him go. And the inevitable happens, splash, and he goes. He rolls once. And the first time he rolls, his eyes are wide open as he looks at me as he goes down to roll for the second time. The second time he comes up, now his hand's up in the air, and so I let him go for a third time. And the third time, there's screaming involved and taking in of water as well. I detected no repentance. (laughs) But I could bear his misery no longer. So I pulled him out. The Israelites had abandoned God, doing whatever was right in their own eyes. We read this right at the end of Judges, don't we? This is the time that it is. And they were following every idol that they could lay their hands on. And disobedience was at its worst point here and now they're crying out to God to save them all because the idols have been found wanting what about your idols what about my idols how are they going how are you going with your idols how am I going with my idols too which idols are we serving who do we serve which idols have we got still over there what I'm saying is what is the thing that by your actions shows that it is more important in your life than serving God is it money Is it financial security? Is it sport? Is it your job? Is it your kids? Maybe the computer that you spend hours and hours and hours on without really thinking about God. Or the idol that most people have now that you see every day with everybody looking at it. Everywhere they go, serving this idol, spending more time, their mind is there far more than it is on God. As a young man, some of you know, I bowed down to the God of sport in the form of baseball. I served it. I worshipped it. And by my actions, it was very, very obvious that this was my God. I'd come to Christ at the age of 15, 
But he was back here somewhere. My God here, really, and my idol was baseball, but it couldn't save me. And God graciously, as some of you know, uh, moved me away from that by allowing something to happen to me, which is quite dramatic, but I really praise God for that now. Can I ask you, in a time of stress and oppression, how do your idols go? How are they going in those times? They don't do anything, do they? Because they cannot rescue you, they are powerless to save, and they do absolutely nothing for you in that moment. Let's go to verse 15. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. In other words, do anything. Just get us out of here. Look at verse 16. Look at that first word. Then they got rid of their foreign gods among them and served the Lord. In other words, oh, look, look, God, we're getting rid of all our idols as well. See, we've got rid of those as well. It's not really genuine, is it? But then we have this beautiful and poignant moment, I think, in the second half of verse 16, which tells us so much about the love of our wonderful and faithful God uh, that he has for his people. What does it say? It says, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Notice that it doesn't say God was responding to their genuine repentance because there was none. Just fear and oppression so great that they would do anything to be done with that. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Isaiah 63, 9 is a beautiful, beautiful verse. And it refers to these times when the Israelites are under oppression as well. And it says this, it says, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. It was, genuinely, it was genuinely hurting the Lord to watch this, to see his people in such a sinful state. Just like it is when he sees us in our sinful state, it actually hurts him. He's not passive. He feels that. He doesn't want that for us. And this whole thing is not about the Lord responding to any genuine repentance of the Israelites that's not causing this to save him. This is not the cause. It's all about the Lord's great love for his people despite their abandoning him this is about the covenant that he made with them that he was going to keep no matter what he's a god who does not break his promises in fact in chapter 2 right at the start of chapter 2 verse 1 it says i will never break my covenant with you he's a god that can be trusted and he's about to save them again verse 17 when the ammonites were called to arms and camped in gilead so they've moved into the area the Israelites assembled at camp uh, at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who leave, live in Gilead. So the Ammonites have arrived in Gilead and they're ready to rumble, right? And the Israelites set up in Mizpah. And then basically the leaders are there and they're looking at each other. And basically they're going, okay, fellas, who's going like, to um, lead us? And if it was a mini-series, the credits would be coming up right now. And as they were rolling, the leaders of Gilead would all be looking at each other, wondering what's going to happen next. And then the curtain would go down. Let's go to chapter 11 and meet our judge today. See what it says about him. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. Good start. He's a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. It's interesting, isn't it? Same name as the area they're from. But his mother was a prostitute. Okay, all just fell apart. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. wonder why they did that. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. Oh, even back then, when it comes to money and inheritance, we're looking after our own interests here too. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, which is adjacent to that, so it's not too far away, but it's out of Gilead, where a gang of scoundrels 
as in uh, worthless misfits, adventurers, outcasts, that sort of people, gathered around him and followed him. So he's been taken out of that, but he's gathered all these people around him. Just like he's an outcast, now he's gathering all these outcasts around him too. So, so Gilead now has rejected someone who could have been their leader in exactly the way that we saw Israel rejecting the Lord who should have been their leader as well. Verse 4, Sometimes later, sometime later when the Ammonites were fighting, so the, the war starting there, against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. So Jephthah said to them, sure, no worries, can hardly wait to get home, see my brothers, smite a few of those Ammonites. Well, no. Doesn't this just sound like what the Israelites do every time they're in danger and the whole thing's falling apart? They go and call on the one they rejected, the Lord, to help save them. And even now in this situation, are they inquiring of the Lord? No, they're not. Do they put their trust in the Lord? No, they've gone to a man. These elders are fair income D-minus students when it comes to Israel history because they would know time and time again this is what happens. But fortunately for them, God has a plan for Jephthah and is going to use him and nothing stops his plans. Verse 7, Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? So he doesn't straight away say, oh yeah, fellas, love to come back. Great, let's go. The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come and fight with the Ammonites and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. In other words, it's panic stations in Gilead because we're about to lose everything we've got. And we know that you and your band of outcasts have actually been able to achieve some pretty good things in all these hostile conditions here. So what about it? Verse 9, Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord, and he actually uses the covenantal word here. He's talking Jehovah, Yahweh. And the Lord gives them to me. Not he beats them, the Lord gives them to me. Will I be your head? So instead of just saying, yeah, he's actually making sure about that. He's using his word, he's negotiating here. Verse 10, the elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness, we will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. In other words, an army leader and also leading uh, Gilead as well. And he repeated all these words before the Lord in Mizpah. Uh, that was sort of like a uh, formal swearing in uh, ceremony, I guess. It basically confirmation before the Lord as to what has been agreed. And just as a side note, we should really see there that why are they doing this at Mizpah? Because their place of uh, worship really is in Shiloh, which is about 20 k's from there, where they, they should be worshipping. And I think that this is just another example of these, the Israelites just their downward spiral when it came to their worship of God. It just continues to deteriorate because it would not have happened in Joshua's day, that's for sure. Then Jephthah sent messages to the Ammonite king with the question, what do you have against me that you will attack my company? So he doesn't say, hey, get the swords, let's go smite all those guys. No, let's try something else first. Let's go the peaceful route. Remember the first thing we found out about Jephthah? He was a mighty warrior. And part of that is obviously being strategic. And this is what he's doing here. He's being strategic. Rather than losing a whole bunch of guys, jumping in swords and all, he asks this question to see if there's a peaceful solution. Let's see what the king of the Ammonites says. 13. The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messages. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. That's two rivers. All the way to the Jordan, which is another river over here. Now give it back peaceably. So the Ammonite king is saying, hey, this is our land, give it back. But there's one minor issue with his argument. Actually, there's one major issue with his argument. Verse 14, Jephthah sent back messages to the Ammonite king saying, this is what Jephthah says. 
Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and on to Gadesh. Then Israel sent messages to the king of Edom saying, give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. What did they do? They did exactly what they were asked to do. Next, they traveled through the wilderness, skirting the lands of Edom and Moab, uh, passed uh, along the eastern side of the country of Moab, so they've gone around the outside, and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is a river, so, it's, so they're out of their territory. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. 19. Then Israel sent messages to Sion, this is another one, king of the Amorites, keep that in mind, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, let us pass through your country to our place. Sion, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his troops and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. In fact, this guy from the Ammonites, not only did he say, no, you can't come through our place, but we're going to get you. And they attacked them. Let's see what happens. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and his whole army into Israel's hands and defeated them. Israel took over the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to Jordan. And Israel wasn't even looking for a fight. Now they've got all this land, historically. So what we're learning here is that Jephthah has got a really good handle on history in the area, who owned what, when they got it, and how they got it. Okay? Jephthah continues, verse 23. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemish, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord, our God, covenant God, Jehovah, Yahweh, has given us, we will possess. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippah, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? That's a reference to a story with a talk, talking donkey that we don't need to go there today, but he's actually paralleling this. Verse 26, For 300 years Israel occupied Heshbon, uh, Aroah, the surrounding settlements, and all the town along the Arnon. Why didn't you take it during that time? Been here 300 years. So they had this land in their possession unchallenged for 300 years and all of a sudden the Ammonites want it, okay? 27, I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. So Jephthah's done his best to get this this thing solved, right? By negotiation, using his words like he did when he was negotiating with the elders at Gilead about why he should come out of Tob and lead them. He's corrected the Ammonites' king pretty poor knowledge of history and geography, or it might have been a convenient uh, thing that he was saying, letting him know that he's got no claim to this land whatsoever because he knew what really happened in that region. And now Jephthah is ready to fight if need be. So let's find out what happens. Verse 28. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. So negotiations are broken down. We're about to have another Middle East crisis. Okay? 29, this is a big one. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. Dun, 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 dun. We know from experience, anytime the Spirit of the Lord comes on one of God's people, it's not going to be good for the opposition. It's like the game is over before they've even bounced the ball, okay? Just a quick explanation, because there may be some people here who do not understand the difference between the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon people. God would send that for a specific purpose so that they could do something. It might be lead an army. It might do some great thing. Extraordinary things that were done when the Spirit of the Lord came on them. After the cross, after Jesus has saved people and they have become Christians, they believed in him, the Spirit of God comes to them and remains in them. 
in the Old Testament may come on somebody, it may come off somebody as well. Okay, just as an explanation there. So here we have the Lord graciously empowering Jephthah for war by having the Holy Spirit come upon him. But that doesn't mean just by the way that all the things he's going to do are necessarily going to uh, reek of wisdom and the character of God. We need to understand that and we'll see that soon in the story. So the king of Ammon has paid no attention to what Jephthah has said. So what does Jephthah do? 29. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, I'm guessing possibly even picking up some more soldiers along the way. And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. So the battle is about to begin. But, just before we head into the battlefield to see what happens, we're about to be confronted with a very unsuspecting twist, which is like a, a subplot in this whole story. It's like one of those situations when you go to a movie and you think you know what the movie's about, it's all going along fine, and suddenly you go, whoa, what was that? Where did that come from? I was totally not expecting that. And up to this point in the story, we've seen Jephthah using his words to negotiate. Uh, he's negotiated with the, the Gileadites to be commander. He's attempted to negotiate with the king of Ammon to keep the peace. And the twist in this story comes when he attempts to negotiate with somebody else. Who's he going to try and ne- negotiate with? Tell me. God. He's going to try and negotiate with God. And I tell you, when you think that you can negotiate with God, it's not going to go well for you because he's a God who does not need any negotiation. Verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If, so if you, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. What's he doing this for? Sounds like the sort of things that the the Canaanites would do. That's what they did. They go to the gods, oh, I sacrifice this. If you do this, give us this. If we do this, give us financial prosperity. Here's this, here's that. So they're making bargains with these gods, and that's what they did. Who told him that he needed to do this, Jephthah? Did God ask for a sacrifice? No, he didn't ask for a sacrifice. He's got everything that he needs to be successful here, Jephthah, because the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him, and that's going to do it. He's been equipped for everything that he's going to need. So why is he doing this? It's the Lord that has placed these plans in place. He didn't need to negotiate with anybody here. And what does the Lord say to him? Have a look at it. What does the Lord say to him straight after he's made this vow? Have a look. What does he say? That's right. Nothing. Crashing silence is what comes straight after that. This is like lucky charm bargaining with God. So let's see what happens. And a warning to the viewers. It's about to get ugly here too. This is not good. This is a horrible story. Verse 32, Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Minnith, as far as Abel Kerim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Well, actually, they did at that time. We find out later on that they still caused trouble. Victory. So, who won the victory here? Tell me who won the victory. You tell me. Tell me who won the victory. God won the victory. That's exactly right. But our attention now gets turned back to the vow, because everybody's heading home from war. Verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels. Of course she was dancing to the sound of timbrels. This is what they did. When they had battles that they won, quite often the women would come with tambourines and they would play and they would sing. If you go right back to Exodus 15, you'll see Miriam, who's the um, sister of uh, Aaron and a prophet, after the Egyptians have been dumped in the, the Red Sea and the victory comes, Miriam takes her timbrel and she, she plays and all the women are behind her and they sing uh, this victory. 
and thanks uh, to the Lord. And so this is what Jephthah's daughter is doing right here. It's not surprising. Verse 34 continues. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried. Get this, get this. Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down. I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that cannot be broken. He's referring to Numbers 30 verse 2 here that says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. But who should be devastated here? The point here is though, but what about God's law that's been given to the Israelites? What does it say about this whole thing? Deuteronomy 18.10 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter. It's very, very clear that this is not a practice that God approves of. 36. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. We can't just read that. This is amazing. What submission from a daughter to her father who's just taken over the Ammonites. He's defeated and won, but she is now saying, do as to me as you need to. I find this staggering and so unnecessary. Verse 37, but grant me this one request, she said, give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She, she and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. The amazing thing for me is two months she's gone and surely during that time, Jephthah has to be thinking, what have I done here? This is not right. Even if I break my vow and take the consequences on myself, but he doesn't do that. 39, after two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. She was a virgin. This is horrendous stuff. From this comes the Israel, uh, Israel tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Why did he do this thing? Why had he done this such a abhorrent thing? And I think the answer is, when you look around the landscape, how many false gods have the Israelites been serving? What they've been listening to, what behavior have they been watching? And now many of these things have probably become second nature to them. And so when they go out and they ask, you know, we'll give you a, a sacrifice for this, for this God, he's just made this vow and it's cost him his daughter. And the terrible irony here, this is terrible stuff, that Jephthah has gone out, he's made this vow, he's gone out, he's defeated the Ammonites, and guess what? The Ammonites' god is Milcon, and guess what Milcon delights in? Child sacrifice. Remember that this unnamed girl also was his only daughter, and he had no sons, as we know, so his line finishes right there. So there's another consequence of what's going on here, and the curtain falls on this scene. Let's move to chapter 12. The Ephraimite forces, these are some of the tribes of um, Israel, the Ephraimite forces, forces were called out and they crossed over to Zaphron. They said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Hang on a second. This is Israel and Israel talking here. And this guy's saying, hey, how come you didn't call us out to help you fight? Because you didn't. We wanted to fight the enemy with you. We're going to burn your house down with you in it. This is like pretty extreme. It's Israelites threatening Israelites. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites and although I called you, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord, covenant Lord, gave me the victory over them. Now why have you come to fight me today? Why are the Ephraimites acting this way? 
I think the answer is probably because they didn't get any, any of the plunder from the fight. And they've got a history of this because if you go right to the start of chapter 8, you'll see in the first words exactly the same thing with Gideon. Hey, Gideon, how come you didn't invite us down? To... It's the same deal. It looks like they've got a bit of a history uh, with this. Verse 4, Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead, he'd had enough of this, and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down. But then I put a circle around the word because, because I couldn't believe this. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. That's their reason. It's like this racial slur coming on them. They're saying that, you know, you're, you're renegades, outcasts. In the ESV, it's put this way. It says, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. In other words, you don't belong here. And apparently that made the Gileadites' blood absolutely boil and this was the last straw and so this massive battle erupts. And the Gileadites absolutely pound them. And keep in mind, of course, that the Spirit of God, God is on Jephthah. So why wouldn't it? The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan, in other words, the area that you can go across, leading to Ephraim, because of course you would have a lot of these Ephraimites trying to get back to their country. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied no, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said uh, Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords at the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. This is like death by dialect because they couldn't pronounce S-H. It'd be like if <coughs> the Aussieites uh, were fighting against the Indianites with King Shabu because they wanted their land and they said, it's my land. So they had this big fight and the Aussieites win and then the New Zealandites with their leader, Captain Nathan, comes across and says, hey, how come you didn't invite us into the fight? when it all happened and we said well you didn't you didn't come and so this big fight goes on and the Aussieites just absolutely knock them apart and while the New Zealandites are trying to go back across the ford of the Tasman Sea the Aussieites get hold and they say hey are you a New Zealandite and they say oh no I say, okay say fish and chips <laughs> it's the same sort of idea so these guys <coughs> are being killed because they can't say a word. And remember, the tragedy here again is that this is Israel killing Israel. And this is a horrible, horrible situation. The story of Jephthah ends quite suddenly with a lot of loose ends to it. It's a tragic story. And we simply hear in verse 7 that Jephthah led Israel six years, then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the town of Gilead. One thing I saw, which is interesting, it's the first time in the whole of Judges where the time of peace, which is six years when the judge is there, is much shorter than the time of oppression. Usually it's the other way around, but there was 18 years of oppression, but this time only six years of peace. And he, of course, gets buried in the town of Gilead, the very place they threw him out of. It's a bit ironic too, isn't it? It's interesting, in Hebrews 11, in verse 32, there's a verse there that goes through all the... Um, it's the roll call of all the faithful men, basically. And um, Jephthah's in there. Yeah, I know. It's, it took me a while to sort of sort through how he would be there. It actually says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Now, this is Jephthah, who a lot of you probably didn't even haven't heard about until today but he's in there with David and, and Samuel and Samson and Gideon and all these guys so what's going on here and as I studied this guy in his life and his victories and his sin you realize all of these guys had sin in their life the whole lot of them 
So that didn't make him the faithful ones. But when you look back at the story, there's a few things that you can see that despite his sin, show us in fact that he was a man of faith and a man of God. And that is, I mean, any time he went into the battle, what language did he use? Who did he say won the battle? Did he ever say that I won the battle? No, it was always about the Lord giving them into my hands and all that type of thing. So he's mentioned as a man of faith, um, but who's doing all the work in his life? I think it's by the grace of God that he is in that list and it's interesting that he appears there. So what can we take out of this terrible mess of a story? And I struggle with this one. We've sort of covered some of those things there too. And hopefully some of that's been helpful. Maybe it's even prompted a few things in your mind. I think one of the things we do see is that it's really important to be careful about the words that come out of our mouth, how we use them. And in an extreme case, and some people fall into this, and I think I probably have once or twice in my life too, that we should never think that we can bargain with God. God, if I, if I do this, will you do this? And God, if you do this for me, I'm, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to do... It's nothing to do with that. We do not bargain with the God of the universe that's not how it works but rather trust him wholeheartedly know that he has our best interest at heart anyway he loves us and he just wants us to serve him so if the Lord is convicting you of that this morning there's some things you're going hey I actually do that repent of that talk to him about that ask him to help you with that to trust him more I think the story of Jephthah also gives us one of those classic Bible moments when we come across God using a very, very unlikely person to achieve his purposes. So this guy's got a prostitute for mother. They kick him out of his land, okay? And he ends up with a whole bunch of hooligan-type guys. So who's thinking even for a second that this is the guy that's going to be leading, and yet he does? And there's so many people that God uses, surprisingly, that on the surface they don't look like the sort of people that you'd choose for the job. But I bet you know them. I do. There's people who are Christians and go, man, how did they end up doing that? That is phenomenal because that is so not what they're like. Beautiful. Because you see, the prerequisite for working with God often is you don't have the skills. You are not the purpose. And the purpose for that is it's because God gets all the glory out of that because you could not possibly have done that by yourself anyway. You look at the Bible, you look at guys like Moses, Gideon, a little smelly shepherd boy who comes in last after everybody's already there and finishes up king. Surprising people. And it's encouragement to us. You know, God delights in using these people because they bring glory to him. And I want to encourage you, if you think that you're somebody that God can't use, he actually can. In fact, he might be trying to and you're not listening to him. So will you open your heart to him and see what it he has for you? Because you may well be very surprised. I think that the big one for me and the most obvious one, and we could talk about this every week in our series of Judges, and I think we have even, but I'm going to bring it up again because I think it's important for us to keep this at top of mind. And that's recognizing and being aware of this world around us. We saw today how quickly the Israelites have taken on all the idols now. So they're in the ways of Canaan, the, the world around them. Now, current world idols and practices and thought processes are now so far removed from God's ways. You know what? Um, if you're as old as me, firstly, I, I apologize for that, but if you're as old as me, you've seen in these last 10 years particularly how quickly things have moved away from God. If you're a younger person, you haven't seen it as much because you're sort of growing uh, with that. And unless we're on our guard, it can be really easy to be sucked into believing that what the world is telling us is truth when it actually isn't. It's a lie. And it's particularly confusing, as I said, for young people who are growing up in that environment and, and seeing that as the norm. And the greatest defense and protection for this, and you've heard it all before, but I'm going to say it because it's absolutely true, and particularly now, 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 is God's word. 
reading his word, understanding his word. What does his word say? And to test things that the world is telling us, not by listening to people, but seeing what God's word says about it. Rather than saying, oh no, this is fair, and this is the inclusive thing, and this is the ethical thing. When you look and you line it up with God's word, it's not even close to what God is saying. We need to be separate. We are different from uh, the world. I can't emphasize that enough. If you show me a church um, that agrees with a lot of the world's thoughts and what's going on, I'll show you a church that is not preaching the word of God faithfully. I can promise you that. One thing I believe the Lord revealed to me uh, two days ago in the portable over there, and I'm going to share it with you, and probably you'll go, no, that's not me. Let's get out of here. This pastor's cracked, basically. But it works like this. It was when uh, I was looking at the Israelites and they were saying, we have sinned against you. But we know it wasn't real repentance. They were just making a statement. We have sinned against you. The Holy Spirit, in a very sudden light bulb moment for me, convicted me, John, this is you sometimes. I'm thinking, what is that? I might recognize that I'm dealing with a particular sin and even tell the Lord what it is, which is really kind of me, just in case he sort of missed that along the way somewhere. But I realized that sometimes, even though I might talk to him about this sin, I leave out the important step of actually coming to Jesus, confessing that sin to him, repenting of it, and asking for forgiveness. It's really easy to talk to God, God, this sin, this sin, this sin. But sometimes I forget that step of actually coming to him in repentance and confession and forgiveness and receiving the forgiveness of Christ. And so I wanted to mention that this morning in case there are others like me. And it mightn't be all the time, but we need to really recognize that this uh, is happening. And so I've been given my own application point by the Holy Spirit uh, this week, and that's been uh, good for me, and I need to obey that and be aware of that. I hope it resonates with some of you as well. Last point, then I'm done. Something we've been reminded of today is that when we sin, we rarely sin in isolation. And that is so, so true. If you think back to some of the sin in your own life and did it just affect you, the answer is probably going to be no. Uh, did it affect our wives, our husbands, our kids, our friends? Sometimes. The story of Jephthah and his vow, did that just affect him? No. His daughter's life, I gather her friends, a lot of people around them too, because of his sin of not obeying what the Lord had. And I'm compelled now, and I'm putting a smile on my face at this point, because this can be quite depressing, this book, okay? So here it is. I am compelled to encourage those of us who know the Lord Jesus to keep short accounts of our sin so that it doesn't overwhelm us, it doesn't get an arm hold on us, then a leg hold, then a body hold, and finally a strangle hold on us as well, because that's how Satan works, bit by bit by bit by bit, as we don't confess our sin. But instead, come to him with great thankfulness, To the one who, in obedience to the Father, took our sin to the cross with him to appease his Father's wrath, who would not accept any sin. He is, there's no sin in him, so he can't accept that. And he had to do something, and he rescued us as a result of Jesus' work at the cross and forgiving us of our sin, rising from the dead, sending us his Holy Spirit that lives in us. And I'm so often overwhelmed and brought to tears because. Uh, just realizing that you are set free from something you could not set yourself free from. It's an amazing thing.
And if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, he's there and he's waiting for you to respond to him. Reach out to him because when you seek him, you will find him. So that you too, one day, may be able to say like me, oh, oh, my sin, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are amazing. You never give up on your people, even when we desert you. You have a covenant with us, Lord God. We thank you that we belong to you. We thank you that you have accepted us despite our sin, Lord God, but only through the cross of Christ and his blood shed for us. Lord God, I just pray that this morning the things that we've, we've thought about, the things that we've read might resonate with us, Lord God, that you might take one or two of these things and you might help us to apply it in our life, Lord God. Would you help us to be open to you, to speak to you about these things and get our lives right with you, Lord God, that we might serve you and serve you well in this place. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. We thank you, Father, for being the Father of all your children. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.